You're listening to a Richwood Church podcast. I really love hearing the enthusiasm of those who are new to our church and what they discover when they come here. And much of that is due to your generosity and your warmth. And so thank you so much for that. You know, as we look back on Christian history, many of our Christian heroes struggled with the same doubts and fears that we deal with. I think of Charles Spurgeon, who was a great preacher in the 1800s. He is widely considered to be the best of all time. He was, his nickname is the Prince of Preachers. And one day while he was preaching to his church, which was in a theater with about a thousand people there, it caught fire. And seven people died, and he fell into a deep depression. C.S. Lewis C.S. Lewis lost his wife to cancer and struggled with the despair of that for a long time. And even Mother Teresa, this amazing champion of the oppressed, said this, I want to smile even at Jesus so to hide, if possible, the pain and darkness of my soul, even from him. These people are like us. They struggled with the same kind of things. And our biblical heroes did too. They paid a high price for their faith. They, they struggled with ups and downs. If you read the Apostle Paul, he, he's suffering. He, he's been shipwrecked and beaten and jailed and, and snake bit. And he's, he's wondering, you know, God, how am I going to keep going because I have this body of death I want to be free from? And you see Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr who paid with his life, being stoned to death, interestingly enough, as Saul, Paul, gave assent. And the man who wrote the book we'll study today, Peter, he was martyred. He, he was crucified upside down, as tradition has it. They, they were going to crucify him, and he said, I, I don't want to be crucified like Jesus. Crucify me upside down, because I am not worthy. And so he knew what it was like. And and he was in this first century that was crazy, and there was turmoil, and his life was threatened. But yet he wrote this amazing letter that gives us practical advice from someone who knows regarding how to live the Christian life. And everything he wrote to these first century exiles is applicable to you and me, because We struggle with depression. We struggle with doubt. We struggle with trials. So today, my hope is, is that when you leave here, you'll be encouraged that you can continue in, you can remain in, you can stand on all of the truth that you know, that you can keep the faith. And so let's find out how we do that. Please open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to go to the final chapter today. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible with me, you can grab the one in the seat back in front of you, and you can turn to page 1016. 1 Peter 5, beginning in verse 1. And those of you who are guests this morning, we've been working through this amazing book, and we've been talking about, as strangers and aliens in a culture that's changing so quickly, how do we thrive in that kind of environment? Now next week, we're going to begin to walk to the cross with Jesus from the Gospel 
of John. And we're going to enter into the passion of Jesus until the joy of Resurrection Sunday morning. But here, Peter is wrapping up a wonderful letter with practical advice. This is how we keep the faith. And in verses 1 through 3, he talks about how we can thrive within our church setting. And he's going to tell us how to lead well and how to follow well. So look at verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so as Peter provides this kind of rapid fire, how-to list of how to live the Christian life in a hostile culture, he begins with a fundamental place, a fundamental piece that most churches overlook, and it costs them dearly. You can help this church thrive. You can keep the faith by helping Ridgewood govern itself well. And people have called me a governance geek because I wrote my dissertation on governance gone bad and and what happens to those churches and why it happened. And so this is really important, both from a leadership perspective and from a follower perspective. Peter identified himself here as a fellow elder whose authority came from witnessing the sufferings of Christ and as a partaker of future glory. The word elder is from the word presbyteros, which denotes a church office, which consists of overseers who are spiritual leaders of the church. And then he goes on to provide strict commands here regarding how these leaders are to govern the church. He says elders are to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, not with compulsion, because they have to, but eagerly. An overseer is not to lord power over a weaker person. In fact, uh, an elder is to lead out. An elder is to serve the sheep. An elder is to do what a shepherd would in the field and lead his sheep to graze happily and safely and with a servant's heart. An elder does this. It's really a hard job to lead. But Peter tells us here the rewards are great. A dedicated overseer will receive award from the chief shepherd. I love that term for Jesus. We are all under shepherds as leaders. And at Ridgewood Church, we are led by a board that we call the Board of Stewards. These are elected body of believers that have come together and help govern the church. And you are so fortunate to have this particular group of board of stewards because they love God, they love you, they pray for you, they have no agenda outside of wanting the church to move forward. And so we're fortunate to have them. But here's where you come in, and here's where you can help them. First, I would just ask you to pray for them regularly. And if you're not sure who they are, you can just hop on the website 
And there's a whole list of them and, and even pictures. So you can put two and two together when you come to church on Sunday. But I would ask you to pray. I would ask you to think about leading yourself. The Bible tells us that we are to be eager and we are to pursue leadership. So I would ask you to be praying, God, what do you want me to do at Ridgewood Church? How can I lean in and become a leader here? And then I would ask you to think about becoming a member so that you can vote on important issues like choosing the board, like finances and those kinds of things. Because if we govern our church well, as the culture batters against it, it will survive and thrive. But if, it, if we govern loosely and without clarity, then it will come apart at the seams. And so leadership governing well is so important. But for the vast majority of us, it's following. And that's where Peter turns his attention now to the followers. And here's what he says. You can keep the faith by following well. And he turns his attention to submission now. It's easy to throw stones at leaders. And we do that at politicians all the time. And it's so easy. It's much harder to be a good follower and a Christ-like follower. And here's what Peter instructs us to do in verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, in the first century, the reason that Peter uses this language is that the vast majority of church leaders were older. That was a cultural mindset. And he's talking to those who are younger. But then he also inserts this idea, all of you. And to clothe ourselves refers to the apron of a slave. The, 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 the household laborers made up a huge percentage of early church goers. And so they would have understood, you tie on that apron. And he may have even been referring to the time when Jesus wrapped that towel around himself and leaned down and washed the feet of the disciples in humility. So we are to put on, we are to clothe ourselves with that kind of humility so that we can follow well. Because God literally here is against the proud, but he gives acceptance to the humble. Pride has no place in the body of Christ. And so if we want to be steadfast, if we want to thrive as a church, we both need to pay attention to our governance and we need to be good and prayerful followers. We need to have a humble attitude. But Peter doesn't stop just at the church. He's going to take that idea of humility and submission to a whole new level. Here's the next tool in 6 and 7. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So not only are we to submit to our leaders, we are to submit directly to God. And you can keep the faith by humbly submitting to Him. And this is really important as well, because within a world of Christian self-help books and formulas 
And in some preaching that sounds more like fortune cookies than biblical preaching, it's easy to get distracted by, yes, I can do this, I can do this, God wants me to thrive, God wants me, he doesn't want you to thrive, but maybe in a way that you're not expecting. He wants me to prosper, he wants me to get a new car, a new house, he wants my life to be easy. When really the Bible teaches submission, submission is the key to having a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. Submission is what thriving is all about. And he uses this term, therefore, that relates back to what we just learned. So given that God opposes the proud, we are commanded to deliberately submit to him. And you can do so even in a hostile culture because God's mighty hand will someday exalt you or literally lift you up. And so this is always that hope that Peter brings. Here's a command. This is going to be hard, but it's going to be okay because... In the future, God is going to do such and such. And here is such a hopeful thing. We can can do this. We can submit to God. You can cast all of your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. That's an amazing verse. That's an exciting and hopeful truth because as strangers and aliens, who else is going to? We watch out for each other, but at the end it comes down to our relationship with God. And so we can cast our anxiety at His feet. We live in a culture that worries about everything. We live in a culture where anxiety is a massive problem. And there are some medical reasons for that. And I'm not at all saying that medical reasons should not be dealt with. And But worry itself, incessant worry, is nothing short of sin. And here's why. Worry is prideful because it focuses on me. It relies on my human power to get things done. And if I don't see it lining up in my temporal frame of reference, then I worry. Worry is a reluctance to rely on the power of God. A reluctance to put myself in his hands and say, whatever you have for me, I may not like it, but I'm comfortable with it because you know better than I do. And then worry tends to ease itself. And we have so much to worry about. We're all worried about the coronavirus. but We're all concerned. We're all watching. It's easy to panic. You know, you go to Costco. I mean, you can't even find water at Costco. I feel like I should have listened to those doomsday people 10 years ago that said to get a shelter and stock up. But people are panicking. And we are worried about that. We're worried about the health of our kids and grandkids, and we're thinking about our own health and the future. Will I ever get married? Will I ever have friends? Where will I live? Where will I work? And before we know it, we've worried ourselves right out of our faith. And we've had our joy stolen because we worry about everything. And this is exactly what Satan wants us to do. The enemy of our faith wants us to do this. But here's what Jesus said. Jesus had these incredibly wise words. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food 
and the body more than clothing? And then I can almost see him looking up in the air. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And favorite line in the Bible, literally. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? What wise words. What great teaching. Which of you are going to extend your life by one hour by worrying? And just look around you. Is God not taking care of animals that don't even store for the future? Listen, worry and anxiety put our joy and our faith in jeopardy because this is how Satan begins to come at us. Before we know it, we're not thinking about how we're going to advance the kingdom. We're thinking about how we're going to advance our own agenda or simply survive. So don't let Satan do that. Stay close to Christ. Live for Christ. Remember that you belong to Christ. And this submission is so important because worry and anxiety disappear with submission. But we must here acknowledge that we do have an enemy that wants to destroy, and that's where Peter goes next because he wants to undermine your faith. Look at verses 8 and 9. Here's another tool to keep the faith in a hostile culture. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so what's the tool? It's obvious. It's simple. Not so simple to do. You can keep the faith by resisting Satan. Now, the title Satan means adversary, which means immediately he is your adversary. He is your enemy. He is pure evil. He is not an impersonal creature. He's not a thought. He's not a concept. He's a real being that's out to get you and destroy you. Many people don't take Satan seriously, but biblically, he is a fallen angel. Most people, though, if you ask them, will say, oh yeah, he's the one with the red horns and the pitchfork. And actually, it's really interesting, that whole concept came from the Middle Ages, because believers in the Middle Ages believed in spiritual warfare. They believed in that battle that's going on between angels and, and, and demons and Satan, and they understood the reality of Satan. But what they also theologically understood, and they were right, is that Satan's biggest vulnerability is his pride. That's what got him thrown out of heaven, is his pride. And so they thought to themselves, how do we attack his pride? Let's ridicule him. Let's make fun of him. Let's go right after that pride. And so they began to draw up caricatures of Satan. And the costume that you see show up at your door on Halloween is what? Stuck. And so, don't be fooled by that. Satan is an angel, so he has real power. 
Demons are fallen angels. They have real power. But at the same time, take heart in the fact that God created angels. And so he's far more powerful than any angel or Satan himself. But we must resist him. Notice the Bible doesn't tell us to go chasing after him. The Bible doesn't tell us to go confront him. The Bible doesn't tell us to be a Satan stalker. The Bible says stand firm. Resist him. And so as a stranger and alien in a hostile culture, we can resist him. And I love how Peter just puts this little, this little encouragement here, knowing that the kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. So when, when you're struggling, know that there's an army of people that are there for you, and they're struggling with the same thing. So how do we resist Satan? I think it's, number one, we realize that he's real. We, we have to come to grips with the fact that we have a real enemy out there and that he is oppressing people. He is trying to steal your joy. He's trying to distract you. And that's the first step. Secondly, I think it's important to trust, though, in the supreme power of God so that we don't live in fear. And then we avoid being lured away by his lies. So we read the word, we pray, we involve ourselves with other Christians. And I'll throw this one in. I think the best way to submit, give God every part of ourselves. When we say to God, you can have all of me, whatever it costs, then you're not holding on to things that Satan can try to steal from you. You've already given them away. But that's a scary prayer to pray. Because God has a plan that we might not like. But that's how you resist Satan. And Satan can control you if you let him. Don't let him. Suffering will come into your life. But here's the next point that Peter's going to make for us here is this. You can keep the faith by suffering with hope. So when suffering does enter, there's tremendous hope for you as a believer. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So your hope is not in your own intellect. It's not in your own abilities or talents. Your hope is in the power of God. And, and, and suffering will come, but while it lasts... You can depend on God's firm and strong hand to sustain you. As I've been interviewing trauma survivors for our radio show slash podcast called Life Support, and it's on KTIS at 8.30 on Saturday nights, but it also lives on Faith Radio platform and on our website as well. It's a half-hour show, and we talk with trauma survivors about how they found hope in Christ and how to relate to other trauma survivors. And here's one common theme as I've interviewed these people through really hard stories. The theme is this. The trauma I've experienced, the, suffer the suffering I've experienced, has deepened my faith and has brought me closer to Christ than I ever have been in my life. That's everyone that I've talked to so far. And so we can indeed suffer with hope. 
Because in that suffering and in those trials and in that trauma, there is a reason. And Peter's been been dealing with this through the the whole book. He's been talking about how, how trials come, but Therefore, a reason, they, they make us strong. They keep us close to Christ. And he said, you've got this vast inheritance waiting for you anyway. So no matter how bad it gets here, that's going to be kept for you. So you can suffer with hope. And, and, he, and he's telling us not to worry because of that inheritance. And, and because of that inheritance and the glory of God, we can proclaim his glory. And, and we can be effective believers who love each other well. We can live without fear. And all of that makes a huge impression on non-believers. But through this whole book, he said, you can keep the faith because God is watching out for you. And when we have our church in good stead and when we're thriving here, then we can be out there in the world, we can suffer with hope by submitting to God and we can thrive even though the culture is turning against us. Now, I love verse 11 because Peter here, as he's wrapping up the book, is so filled with the Holy Spirit and his love for Jesus. He pens this little doxology, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter has gone from being the one who denied his Lord to the one who is helping us to keep our faith. Isn't that amazing? What a work that God has done in Peter's life. And so there's an underlying truth here that we can thrive and survive on, and that is you can keep the faith when you give God the glory. Peter was quick to say, hold on, it's not me. It's Jesus because it's his dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then in 12 through 14, he gives his final greetings. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that is the true grace of God. Silvanus likely just copied the book down. He was the secretary that Peter used, probably also delivered the letter. And then he says, stand firm in it. Verse 13, she who is at Babylon... That's been debated, but likely he's referring to the church in Rome, but he can't say the church in Rome because people are being persecuted in Rome, so that's code language. He says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and that would have meant so much to these people because they had fled Rome, and so does Mark, who's probably in Rome, his spiritual son. And then in 14, greet one another with a kiss, a customary greeting of love. They didn't have the coronavirus. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. What a beautiful way to end the letter. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You know, that would be a great way to to send our family off to their rooms to go to sleep, wouldn't it? Peace to you who are in Christ. And so this has been an amazing book. And next week, we're going to begin to walk the passion of Jesus. And then after Easter, we're going to go into 2 Peter. But here's some takeaways from 1 Peter real quickly that you can go to work with tomorrow or go to school or wherever you're headed. First, thriving as a stranger and alien means leading and following well. If you want to keep this in a church context, that was the explicit context. But you can take it outside as a timeless truth. And you can say, leading my family 
with servanthood and humility, leading my team at work, leading my children at school, whatever it might be. I can do that with humility and reflect Christ, and I can follow even if I'm not always in agreement with those that I deal with. Secondly, thriving as a stranger and alien means standing firm. Peter's big on standing firm. Standing firm in our faith. Standing firm against the enemy. Standing firm when trials come at us because we know that God is in it. So stand firm. Don't be shaken when circumstances turn against you. Trust in the power of God. And then thirdly, thriving as a stranger and alien means loving fellow Christians. And this was a constant theme in Peter's writing as well. Because he knows that we can all thrive if we love each other well. Nothing becomes more destructive than when we stop loving our fellow believers. And so here's Peter in the first century. Tumultuous time. They're being persecuted in Rome. He's writing to these strangers and aliens. He's going to give his life and not too distant future. But he's saying to you, believers, that even though you will face trials, you will face depression, you will suffer, you will go head to head with death, that you will thrive if you keep your eyes on Jesus, if you keep the faith. And so this morning, I want you just to close your eyes and spend a moment. What does this mean to you? What does it look like for you to keep your eyes on Jesus? What does it look like for you to give him everything? All your fear, all of the things that you worry about, all your anxiety, your future. What would that look like for you? Just spend a moment talking to God and then I'll close in prayer. Thank you for joining us on the Ridgewood Church Podcast. For more faith-based resources or information about Ridgewood Church, visit us at myrwc.org.